Larry Hogue, a 13-year-old boy, and his nine-year-old brother, Raymond Hogue, woke up to the sound of a gunshot in the middle of the night. Within minutes, their father, Police Constable Leonard Hogue, entered the room. In his hand, a Magnum revolver. Larry fell from the top bunk. Blood seeped into the carpet from the hole in his head. Raymond escaped from the bedroom. Hiding in a locked bathroom, Raymond hid behind the toilet. Cries from his three-year-old brother, Richard, echoed throughout the house. The door wasn't enough to protect Raymond from his father. The door gave way to his weight, knocking it down. The first shot exploded the toilet bowl Raymond used for cover. Hogue didn't miss his second shot. Vancouver Dreadfuls is a podcast about the dark, odd, and horrifying criminal history of Vancouver. Listener discretion is advised. Gruesome content detailed ahead. This is Vancouver Dreadfuls. Constable Leonard Hogue killed his wife and six children before killing himself on April 21st, 1965. In this dreadful, we'll look at Hogue's life, crooked police history, and the night he killed his family and himself. Leonard Hogue was born on April 7th, 1931 in St. Boniface, Manitoba. He grew up in a working class family during the World War II effort. It wasn't poverty, but everything was scarce. He met his wife, Vera Irene Hose, married her, and had two children, Larry and Noreen Hogue, by 1953. The end of World War II brought a new sense of optimism in Canada. Provinces experienced an economic boom and the creation of several jobs, focusing on the growth of suburbs and industrial development. With the surplus of jobs and money, consumption of goods was at an all-time high. Hogue, who worked construction in Winnipeg, spent his money faster than he received it. Hogue was miserable working in Winnipeg. Cold winters, hard labor, and his pay couldn't keep up with his way of living. His attraction to Vancouver was the same for many families who moved there during the 1950s. A new suburban development, cheaper cost of living, and milder weather. Hogue often said he would one day love to own a castle, and with new opportunities in the West, it could become true. By 1954, the family of four moved to Vancouver, Hogue looked for a job around Vancouver wearing the only suit he's ever owned, his wedding suit. The job search wasn't as easy as he thought it would be. Turned away by several construction sites, he found one that had work available. The catch? If Hogue went home and changed, the position could be taken by the time he got back. He ended up working his first day in his suit. With the population boom, Vancouver police were looking to fill their ranks with new officers. In 1956, Hogue graduated from police training. He was also the pistol shop champion of his class. During training, Hogue formed friendships with fellow trainees David Harrison and John McCluskey. All three of them would become crooked cops performing heists around Vancouver in the 1960s. By 1960, Leonard and Vera Hogue had four more children to their family since moving to Vancouver, bringing the toll to six. Along with Larry and Noreen, they had Raymond, Clifford, Darlene, and Richard. 
Hoag's dreams of owning a castle dissipated as his family grew. More children meant more mouths to feed. His salary didn't go as far as it used to, supporting a wife and six kids. One night, Hoag was on patrol with Joe Percival, brother-in-law to John McClowski, and they discovered a Dairy Queen that was unlocked. They entered the facility, and while looking around, they found the night's deposits in the freezer. Being police officers of the 1960s, they stole the money. Why was there a sack of money in the freezer? In the 1960s, it was Dairy Queen's policy to leave the night's deposit hidden in the freezer. It was considered safer than having a teenage employee transporting the cash to the bank after dark. Hoag and Percival would learn about this policy when seeing the report about the robbery a week later. Hoag, seeing an opportunity, reached out to fellow officer Harrison to come up with a piece of metal to jimmy the door locks of local Dairy Queen stores. Known now as the Ice Cream Bandits, they stole deposits from different stores. Within a few months, Dairy Queen changed their policy and started doing nightly deposits. Around the same time as the Ice Cream Bandits, a string of robberies occurred in Vancouver. All the victims shared the same characteristics. Wealthy, on vacation, notified the police ahead of time of their plans. Seven Vancouver police officers were implicated with the robberies, but never charged. The names weren't released to the public, but as a gambling man, I can guess four of the seven names. Hoag, Harrison, Mikulski, and Percival. In November 1961, 14 guns were stolen from Hunter's Sporting Goods on Kingsway. All 14 guns were used in the group's future bank robberies. They graduated from nightly deposits to full-on bank robbery. Just over a year since Hoag started robbing Dairy Queens with Percival and Harrison, the group became concerned about the risks of stealing from fast food restaurants and retail stores. Harrison would describe it as taking a $40 fall. What they were doing wasn't worth the jail time, so they raised the stakes. Bank robberies. The first robbery happened on Christmas Eve, 1962. Hoag and Percival walked into the bank with long trench coats, ski masks, and rifles from Hunter's Sporting Goods. Their arrival was impeccable, as all the tellers were busy counting money when they entered. The robbery was under two minutes. Harrison was the getaway driver, sitting in a stolen car with a borrowed two-way police radio. In all robberies, the radio was used to send officers on wild goose chases. The entire robbery went out without a hitch, and the group netted $106,000, which is $600,000 in today's standards. Hoag had enough money to begin the life he dreamed of before moving to Vancouver. He bought a large house in a rich Coquitlam neighborhood, flaunted money in front of friends and in-laws, who since moved to Vancouver, and spoiled his wife and kids. At work, Hoag's performance was adequate, but he found himself transferred to the city jail during this time. It was an unwritten policy in the Vancouver Police Department that officers suspected of wrongdoing were reassigned to city jail. Harrison and Percival both quit the Vancouver Police Department. Harrison moved to Nelson and transferred to their police station. Percival became a real estate agent to obfuscate his newfound money. Within weeks, the three of them would get together again and plan out their next robberies. They didn't go as smoothly. On June 22, 1964, the group robbed a Sears, Simpson Sears back then, department store. On the way out, a credit manager who takes his job way too seriously, tripped Hogue while he was making his escape. 
causing him to drop and leave behind a Loomis bag of $88,000. On January 15th, 1965, the group robbed a Scotia bank on Denver. This time, McCluskey joined the three as a getaway driver. The robbery ended prematurely because McCluskey panicked and honked the horn after a group of people walked by the car. They only left with $13,000. Rumors of police officers robbing banks circulated the city. The foremen were aware of these suspicions and pulled off one last job, train robbery. The group had knowledge of big money shipments coming from the Canadian Pacific Railway Yard on West Pender. The score was out of circulation bills going back to Ottawa for destruction. On February 11, 1965, the group performed their biggest heist. Hogue, disguised as a CPR police officer. Harrison, disguised as a mail carrier. Percival, disguised as a CPR detective. McCluskey, disguised as a train engineer. Together, they stole $1.2 million, $6 million in today's standards. The robbery was front page news, and that's how the group learned the money was damaged. The money was mutilated with three half-inch holes prior to delivery to the CPR yards for security, probably to avoid scenarios of train robberies like this one. Luckily for the group, the holes weren't always in the same spots, meaning if someone wanted to cut pieces of one bill and patch them onto others with some clear tape, it's possible to still use it. That's what the group did. Harrison would later talk about the fight between him and Percival regarding the money. He wanted to get rid of it altogether. Between their botched robberies and this, it was a bad omen. Percival wanted to fix the money. Hogue was uneasy about the idea, but McCluskey sided with his brother-in-law. After several weeks of Percival patching up the money, all four of them began circulating it. In sweet irony, police caught Percival passing the stolen money around. On April 17, 1965, at a bar in Edmonton, Percival kept paying for his beer with patched $20 bills. The bartender became suspicious after checking the money and called the cops to check it out. Percival was arrested. The next day was Easter Sunday, and Hogue heard about Percival's arrest while working the city jail in Vancouver. He called McCluskey using a work phone, something he would tell Inspector McGregor later that day when called into his office. Hogue rattled, unknowingly supplied McGregor with a list of suspects associated with Percival, including himself. Being called into Inspector McGregor's office didn't sit well with Hogue. At Easter dinner, his in-laws commented Hogue was twitchy kept answering phone calls during dinner and talking for long periods of time. During conversations, he would just stare blankly, looking at his family, losing all interest in what they were talking about. The next morning, Hogue got into a car accident on Highway 401 near North Road in the family's second car, a Volkswagen. He suffered a 2.5 centimeter cut above his right eye, which he received six stitches for at Royal Columbian Hospital. He called in sick to work that day. Hoke said he was run off the road by another vehicle, but witnesses didn't collaborate his story, nor was there a second car at the crash site, only the Volkswagen. A popular theory suggested that this was a failed suicide attempt. An investigation after Hoke's murder-suicide revealed a lot of missing details from the investigation of his accident. Here are some of them. Hoke mentioned he was run off the road by a vehicle, but no description put into the reports of what the vehicle looked like. Witnesses questioned at the scene didn't recall seeing another vehicle hitting Hoag's. 
RCMP visited Hoag's home in Coquitlam later that afternoon, but conversation notes were missing from the report. No record of how Hoag drove home from the hospital. The Volkswagen was a wreck, and the other family car was in the shop. A few hours after the RCMP visit, Hoag rented a station wagon from a shop in Vancouver at 5.30 p.m. He then visited a man named Don McLeod and borrowed his Magnum, the same gun Hoag would use to kill his entire family. Who is Don McLeod? Don McLeod isn't his real name. It was a name used to protect his identity because he came forward to the police after the news broke out about Hoag's murder-suicide. The original story McLeod shared with investigators where he knew Hoag socially for about a year. Hoag visited to borrow his Magnum to try out at a shooting range. Thinking nothing of it, McLeod let him borrow the weapon. The police investigators revealed more details about McLeod. McLeod and Percival have been friends since 1955, both working as prison guards. McLeod worked as a CPR cop. Harrison would later share with investigators McLeod provided the group with information regarding the money being transported on the CPR robbery. McLeod and Hogue never actually talked about shooting ranges. They talked about the recent arrest of Percival and what it meant for the rest of them. It's a shame we didn't know his real name. Based on the police report and what journalists have written, this is how Constable Leonard Hogue killed his family on April 21st, 1965. Leonard Hoag abandoned his rented station wagon about a half mile away from his house at around 1 a.m. He walked home in the pouring rain, the events of the last 40 hours playing through his mind. Soon, his friends, colleagues, and family will learn he was a crooked cop, a disgrace to the police force. He thought about killing himself earlier in the day, making it look like a car accident for the insurance money. He couldn't bring himself to do it. At the last second, he turned away avoiding a fatal collision. He tried to cover his suicide attempt, telling the RCMP an unknown vehicle pushed him off the road. When investigators visited the house later that day, he couldn't provide details about the other driver. They knew he was lying. Witnesses didn't mention another vehicle, and the investigators wrote nothing down on their notepad. He struggled with the thought of killing himself with a gun he borrowed from his friend, Don McLeod, but his family wouldn't know how crooked he was. Was this the catalyst that caused him to kill his family before himself, so they wouldn't learn of his crimes? Logically, it seems insane, but to a man stressed like Hogue, knowing he is hours away from being arrested and losing everything he had, it could. He entered the house at about 1.30 a.m., didn't take his shoes off, and walked upstairs to the master bedroom. His wife, Vera, was asleep when he shot her in the head. Hogue's intention was to kill his family while they slept. Based on Vera's body position on the bed, there was no sign she was awake when she was shot. It wasn't the case for his six children. Hogue visited the older boys' room first, Larry, 13, and Raymond, 8. The boys woke up from the gunshot moments earlier, but didn't realize what happened until their father entered the room. Seeing a gun in his hand, the boys scrambled. Raymond escaped. Hogue shot Larry in the head while trying to get down from the top bunk of the bunk bed. He shot Larry again, another shot to the head. Clifford, eight, was next to be killed. Hogue found him crouched in a utility closet next to the bathroom Raymond was hiding in. Another shot in the head. 
Raymond was hiding in a locked bathroom. His father kicked down the door. There was a struggle between Raymond and his father. Hogue fired two shots. The first one hit the toilet bowl, and the second into Raymond's head. Raymond's bruised knees hinted he leapt away from the first shot. Hogue went into the daughter's bedroom next. They weren't there. Noreen, 12, took Darlene, 5, into the basement, hiding in an unfurnished room. Hogue found them, shot them both in the head like the rest of his family. Richard, 3, was sobbing in his cot upstairs. He was the last child to die, another bullet in the head. Finally, Hogue returned to the master bedroom and shot himself in the head. Investigators found the bodies a few days later. They found the murder weapon near Hogue's left hand on the floor, but Hogue was right-handed. When Hogue didn't show up to work, Vancouver police sent an inspector to check up on him. When the officer returned, he reported nothing suspicious. The next day, Hogue didn't show up to work again. This time, jail staff sergeant Burt Much and another inspector went to Hogue's residence. No one answered the front door. They peered into the house windows. Five-year-old Darlene was the first body to be discovered by the men as they looked through one of the basement windows. Much and the inspector rushed to a neighbor's house to call the RCMP. Since they were Vancouver police, Coquitlam wasn't their jurisdiction. RCMP officers arrived on the scene. This is what their search found. No forced entry. Opened Easter candy the children unwrapped on Sunday morning. Bodies of the Hogue family, as previously discussed. Hogue's rental car had a crowbar underneath the front seat. The back seat had traces of clay. Something heavy was recently moved. Hogue's rental car had a mileage of 113 kilometers, meaning he went beyond Coquitlam to Vancouver. A neighbor claimed to have heard loud noises late at night, but assumed it was a car backfiring. The only survivor from inside the house was a pet hamster running on its exercise wheel. Within a few weeks, the complete coroner's report was sent to authorities. Based on the evidence from the RCMP, Vancouver Police and the coroner's office, a six-man jury concluded Leonard Hogue murdered his family and took his own life. It was an open and shut case, but there are some doubts in the official report. No matter how horrific the crime is, you always get a handful of people who say, oh, they couldn't have done it, it's not like them. Hogue's case is no different. Coworkers, extended family, and Burnt Much, who found the body, didn't believe Hogue killed his family. Hogue was crooked, but a murderer? Everything he did was to support his family. It made little sense why he would suddenly just murder them. A Vancouver Sun journalist by the name of Robert Sedlak spoke to Dr. Thomas Nogichi in 1999 about the coroner's report. Nogichi had this to say about the 1960s report. RCMP didn't have fingerprints on the gun or shells. RCMP didn't note any blood on the barrel of the gun or on Hogue's trigger hand. If he shot himself in the head, there would be blood residue. Leonard Hogue's autopsy described his skull as smashed, meaning something blunt smashed his head in. The rest of his family had their skull descriptions as fractured, a description typically given to bullets. The consistency between Hogue and the rest of his family didn't add up. If we factor in the following details, we can get a few conspiracy theories going. Hogue was right-handed. The shooter was left-handed. The in-laws shared footage with police of Hogue shaving and throwing snowballs with his right hand. 
an officer was sent to investigate the Hoag residence the day before the bodies were found and reported back that nothing of the ordinary was found. A crowbar was found inside the rental car, a blunt instrument. The traces of clay were from the bins used to hold money from the train robbery. Hoag was missing from the house from 6 p.m. to midnight. That's a lot of unaccounted for time. Prosecution did not mention the robberies in the investigation. Officers said it was to save Hoag's name. Seemed weird robbery is what would tarnish Leonard Hoag's legacy and not murdering his entire family. Hoag claimed to have been run off the road by another vehicle earlier in the morning. The murder weapon didn't belong to Hoag. Now that you know the case for Hoag didn't do it and think police just took the easy way out, consider the following. RCMP had a lot of circumstantial evidence going into the Hoag's house. No forced entry, and the gun was near Hoag's body. Just because it wasn't in an official report doesn't mean it wasn't there. The entire case highlights how inept the police departments were in the 1960s, from transferring problem officers to jail duty to not properly searching the property of someone who was suspected criminal. Hoag shot himself in the temple. Because of the close range of the shot, it could have damaged his skull more than the rest of the family members who were shot at a small distance. Hoag would have dropped the gun. It could have bounced and landed on the left side of where his body fell. The police were simultaneously investigating the robberies. Officially connecting Hoag to them could have given Harrison, McCluskey, and Percival a scapegoat. Still a lot of questions, so once again I ask, who is Don McLeod? This is just my hypothetical I play Clue once or twice theory. Don McLeod killed Leonard Hoag and his family. Edmonton police Joe Percival on Easter Sunday. Percival was more of the mastermind of the group than Hoag was. McClowski was Percival's brother-in-law. McLeod was Percival's contact with the CPR heist. Percival was with Hoag from the start. He was Hoag's partner robbing Dairy Queens. It was clear after Percival's arrest, McClowski, McLeod, Hoag, and Harrison were all talking to each other on what to do. Hoag confirmed this with his superiors when questioned after Percival's arrest, and by Hoag's in-laws, who were over for Easter dinner. Hoag may have suggested two things, turning themselves in or pinning it all on Percival, all of which were anti-Percival options. In the eyes of the group, Hoag was a potential threat to their freedom. The next morning, under direction of Joe Percival, Don McLeod tried to run Hoag off the road, but failed. Later, Hoag went to meet McLeod to sell the differences with the group. They struck a deal, one that would require Hoag to give up his share of the money. Hoag and McLeod drove up to Hatsik Lake, roughly 50 miles away from Vancouver. McLeod used to live up there. They dropped Hoag's share of the money at McLeod's old place and drove back to Coquitlam. Time it takes to drive up there and back? About four hours, which fits perfectly with the unaccounted time Hoag had that evening. After arriving at Hoag's house, McLeod betrayed Hoag by bashing in his head with a crowbar, used Hoag's keys to get into the house, murdered Vera Hoag because she knew some details of the robberies, murdered the children because they were witnesses to McLeod entering the home, framed Hoag for killing his family by placing his body upstairs by the murder weapon, moved the car away from the house, causing it to backfire, which is what the neighbor heard. This gave McLeod time to come up with a story regarding Hoag's boring his gun. 
It's a shame a lot of the physical evidence wasn't documented or recorded properly because it would confirm or deny this theory. Months later, police found the money from CPR robbery in a storage locker in Victoria. The lockers were rented after the Hogue murder. Who provided the police with the tip? Joe Percival. Percival, McCluskey, and McLeod provided evidence against their other partner, David Harrison, in court, showing the three of them shared a coterie to conspire against their former partners. David Harrison, sentenced to 27 years in prison for his role in the robberies, he was paroled in June 1970 and died of natural causes in 1995. Joe Percival, after being released on bail, escaped to Scotland. He received a $60,000 reward from an insurance company for telling the place where to find the stolen money. He had to return the money, though, after being deported by Scotland police. He was convicted of being in possession of stolen money. All other charges were dropped. John McCluskey was suspended from the Vancouver police force shortly after the Hogue murders. He wasn't charged for any crimes. Don McLeod lost his job as a CPR police officer. He was never charged. The Leonard Hogue story is a fascinating tale of corruption in the Vancouver police force in the 1960s. An interesting tidbit I didn't include earlier was that the police were investigating a possibility of the cut Hogue suffered from the car accident the six-inch cut above his eye drove him to insanity, which is why he killed his family. The medical investigation shut this theory down relatively quickly. Now, the million-dollar question, did Hogue do it? I think it makes for a better story if he didn't. This was nearly 60 years ago, so it's hard to say for certain if I think he did it or not. What do you think? This has been another Vancouver Dreadful. Did you enjoy this dreadful? The Vancouver Dreadfuls team needs your support to keep this going, and there are many ways to help out. Send your feedback and comments to vancouverdreadfuls at gmail.com. Follow our social media pages at Vancouver Dreadfuls Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram at Vancouver Dreadfuls, and subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channels at Vancouver Dreadfuls. Lastly, we're running a Kickstarter for season two. Please check it out if you want more dreadful tales. Today's episode has been hosted by Christopher Glant. Audio recorded and post-produced by Rodrigo Robinet. Social media is managed by Sandra Reaño. Animation and motion graphics by Nathan Moran. And art created by Nixon.